God is good. All right, I got a couple of you. Let's try that again. God is good. All the time. All right, so we use that phrase a lot. What about the times that we don't feel like God is being good? Okay, we just got really heavy, and you had some giggles just a second ago. We're going to get a little heavy here at the start. Bear with me. What, what do we do when we don't feel like God is good all the time? We say this, and the reason why we repeat it is because we're reminding ourselves. We constantly need to be reminded because we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Things don't go according to plan. Things break. Bodies break. Situations and relationships break. So is God good all the time? Our feelings, they betray us. Sometimes they say, yeah, uh, I don't feel like God's good. How long do we have to feel that before we stop believing it? And this is the question that our psalm is dealing with today. This psalm is unique. It's a lament psalm, which you're like, hey, we've done those before. It's not unique, but it's a unique lament A lament is a crying out to God, saying, God, it hurts. God, this is not enjoyable. God, I don't know what you're doing. Why are you doing? What are you doing? I don't get it. Most laments in the Bible, and we saw a few last summer, most laments start off with the situation, and they start with, here's how bad it is. It's so dark. It's so bad. And then they have what's called a turn. In the turn... They turn from the situation, and they fix their eyes on the Lord. And you can see it, almost every single lament, which, by the way, the laments are the biggest portion of our book of Psalms. Of the 150 Psalms, lament make up more than half of them. I think that's because of the world we live in, the fallen world. This lament, though, is different. It's very different. One, it's really long, okay? We're not going to read the whole thing, but it's a very long lament, But what makes this lament different is that the writer, he starts with the good news. He starts with the positive, focusing on the Lord, praising the Lord, which usually in a lament is at the very end. And then, halfway through the lament, he turns from the good news and finishes with all bad news. With one little phrase at the end that says, praise be the Lord, right? And that's it. That's this psalm. This psalm is really different. The person writing this psalm is writing it from a place of angst and worry and pain. At this point in the history of Israel, Israel is in exile. They are in Babylon. They are subjugated by the king of Babylon. And it looks like God's promises have failed. And so this psalm is dealing with what if God is not good all the time? What if he's only good some of the time? What do we do with that? So we're going to deal with this. This is the psalm we're looking at today. Because honestly, if we're, if we're honest, there are days when it feels like God is not good. There are days when it feels like I want to go, Lord, what are you doing? This makes no sense. Lord, you've not kept your promises. Lord, where are you? You may not feel it now. But you probably have felt it in the past, and you will definitely feel it in the future. This is a part of what we feel from time to time. So here is our big idea. 
When it appears that God isn't keeping his promises, we must remember what we know to be true of God, his love and his faithfulness. When it appears that God's not keeping his promises, when he's, when he's said, I will do this, and it looks like he's doing the opposite, we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind ourselves that he is love and that he is faithful. And then and only then will we understand what's going on. One author wrote, the most important time to believe God's promises never fail is when they appear to have failed. See, that's the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is it looks terrible, but God is still God. He doesn't change. Unlike us, we're constantly changing. We're letting people down. We're not keeping our word. God keeps his word. And even when it appears that it's not, God keeps his word. So this psalm is unique. It's the last psalm of the middle book of the psalms. Uh, After this, we start in Psalm 90 with Moses. Um, Moses' only psalm, and then we get a whole different type of psalms, a bunch of different feels to it. But at this point, this is the last of this section of psalms, which kind of perfectly hit right in the middle of COVID for us. There was lamenting, there was grieving, and I think some of us might have asked, Lord, what are you doing? And I think that's why we got into this at this point. So like I said, they're in Babylon. Babylon is the, the big baddie at the time. It's the superpower at the time. This is a very late psalm, so this is written probably after almost all the other psalms are written. This psalm is a psalm that the Israelites would have sang. They would have sang a song that ends with, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, come on. So now, anytime you guys think our worship team's ever doing something dreary, we're not singing this whole psalm, okay? Because if we sang this whole psalm and then we're like, all right, bye guys, it's just a depressing way to finish. So understand that this is kind of what this psalm is supposed to make us feel. We're supposed to be feeling, oh, this doesn't make sense. But he tells us how to make sense of it, and it's about remembering. So we can sing this song, they sang this song, we need to be able to be understanding what this psalm's about. So we're going to look into it. It reassured the people of old that God was still God. We as Christians need this reassurance, don't we? We need this reassurance that God's steadfast love does not change, that his faithfulness is always there. See, we, we have a, an advantage, right? We, we, at this point, when this psalm is being written, they're looking forward and saying, God, when are you going to do what you said? We get to look backwards and we go, I know the answer. Ethan, Ethan, pick me. Ethan's the name of the guy who wrote this. I'm not just picking a random name. <laughs> Mr. Psalmist, pick me. I know the answer, right? I'm Hermione Granger, if you know Harry Potter, right? I'm the one that knows all the answers. And I go, I know the answer, I know the answer. And the answer is, answered all of these questions in Christ. So not only do we get to see the the psalm going, what's the deal? What are you doing, Lord? It's also we get to look backwards and we go, this is what the Lord did. Isn't that awesome that we have the picture of what he's already done? And it's meant to encourage us that this God does not change. This God is the same. So there's there's an outline sitting around um, on your chairs somewhere. They're the little wider pieces of paper. This is a a big psalm, and there's a lot of points to it, and so I just kind of gave them to you, so I know some of you are note takers and you want to write them down. 
they're there for you. And if there's not one near you, they're on the back table back there too. Um, but basically, the outline looks like this. It's talking about who God is, asking why the promise looks like it's broken, and then remembering, remembering, oh Lord, please remember. So the writer of this psalm, the writer of this psalm was creating a prayer that would be put to music to help people deal with what they're dealing with. This would have been a psalm that would have been written at the time and then sung at the time. You know, just literally, hey, we're suffering, let's put it down to music and then we're going to sing it. The author's name is Ethan the Ezraite. It turns out he was from the tribe of Levi, he was a court musician, and he was called a very wise person in 1 Kings. He's asking God to intercede on behalf of David and his line, which means Israel. He's saying, God, remember your promises, remember your covenant, remember that you said you were going to do this and deliver us. Okay, so let's dig into the psalm. The first 37 verses are about God's perfect character and promise. This is us, this is the, the, the psalmist exalting in how God's love and his faithfulness are not just attributes of God, they are who he is to the root. They're his essential characteristics. It is what makes God God. You know, you'd look at, if you were to imagine a, a, a divine dictionary and you looked up the word love, the words love's number one definition would be God. The word faithfulness, number one definition would be God because he is the definition of both of those. And the author wants us to not miss this. So he's going to give us five different attributes of God that are all a part of who he is at his root. These are not things that he just takes on. It's not like he goes, okay, I'm going to choose to love right now. Oh, I'm going to choose to be a father right now. No, he is this through and through. Any portion of God is going to be all of these attributes at one time, which is how God is way different than us because a lot of times we do certain hats we wear for certain things. God is the same all the way down. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 4, we see the steadfast love of God. This is that Hebrew word that really probably needs a whole paragraph for the one word. It's the word hesed. It means faithful love. It means graciousness. It means great love. It means love that never fails. This is who God is. God is strong love. God is love that puts all other loves to shame. We see this in verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So we see this is the, the psalmist singing. Remember, I just told you the situation he's in. And instead of starting with all the bad stuff, he starts with, I am going to sing about the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. Why? Because that's who he is. And we also see the reference to David. We'll get into that here in a minute. So the first four verses tell us God is love. God is faithful. Now verses 5 through 18 get into some more praise. Verses 5 through 13 talk about God's creational might. They talk about how God is the creator. He's the one who made everything. We can see this in verse 11. 
the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your names. See, God thought up the idea of north and south. He thought up all the directions. He thought up every single animal. And you're watching the Discovery Channel, or you're watching some, some show, and they show some crazy animal, and you go, God was being a little extra on that day. He was just, just doing a little bit more than usual on that. And we can see that God's creativity, so much so that the mountains, Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, would have been nearby mountains uh, that they would know about. Hermon is really tall. Tabor is smaller, but also one that they would have known. They praise his name. So God's creational might is on display. The third thing that the psalmist wants us to see, he wants us to see that God is righteous mediation. Righteous mediation. A mediator is someone that goes between someone else and makes things right or, or, or settles a dispute. God being a righteous uh, mediator goes between and makes the perfect solution. Look at what he says in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That word righteousness in the Hebrew means to do what is correct. So what it's saying here is it's saying God always does what is correct. And then that word justice is correct judgment. So he always does what's correct and always judges correctly. Why? Because of his steadfast love, his hesed, and his faithfulness. So this is who he is all the way down. I've said that before. and Just don't miss that this is fundamentally who God is. He is righteous. He is just. He is loving. And he is faithful. And this is that conundrum, and Taylor kind of alluded to it when he was, when he was talking, and it was, it was sort of also in our prayer. It's this conundrum of how can God be just and punish sin, but at the same time be loving and accept sinners? Well, the problem is solved by the cross. The cross solves the problem between those two. So we see that this is who God is. The fourth thing we see is that he is a joy-giving presence. Being around him gives us joy. Look at verses 15 through 17. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. That just means that when they shout at the festivals. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. So what does this mean to have a a joy-giving presence? Well, the, the, the story that I found was an author, a biblical Bible commentator writer, told a story about how he was taking his son to college, and it was the, the first time he'd been to college. It was his first semester. They were on the way there, and the dad just kept saying, oh, you're going to do great. It's going to be awesome. No amount of encouragement could get the son out of his anxiety, out of his worry. He was just beside himself with worry. And so the dad pulled over. You don't usually like it when dad pulls over. But he pulled over, and he told his son to get out of the car. And he went over, and he gave him a hug. And he said, son, no matter what happens, I love you. You flunk out, I love you. You go and get perfect straight A's, I love you. Anywhere in between, I love you. And 
Even though he'd been saying those same kind of things, his presence brought that son out of his worry, being close to him. And that's what the Lord wants to do with each and every one of us. He wants us closer to him. And so if there's anything that we can get out of this psalm today is that as we remember what he has done for us in the past, what he's done for others in the past, draw nearer to your Lord. Don't just let it be a glance at him. Let it be a gaze and a drawing nearer to him. Another story, a a pastor who was going through a big, deep time of discouragement. Lots of tragedies, lots of difficult decisions, all converging on him at the same time. And so he laid in his bed and he said, Lord, I'm just done. I'm just done. And so he went to sleep. And he ended up sleeping 18 hours. When he woke up, however, all of it was still there. So he, pre- he prayed out to the Lord, Lord, why? What, what, help me see what's going on here. And the Lord said, I love you. Preach weak sermons, preach great sermons. I love you. Grow a big church, help a church as it's dying. I love you. See, the the, the fog began to lift off him at that point, and he started to go, okay, this is what it's about. Because what does it say in 1 John 4.18? I know some of you have it memorized. Perfect love drives out fear. He is for us. His for-us-ness produces strength. It produces the ability to persevere. And so Ethan is reminding him of that. It says in verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength. You are the reason for their strength. So he gives us the ability to persevere. So we see all four of these. There's one fifth one. The next section, starting in verse verse, uh, 18, all the way through to 37, is reminding themselves and God of the promises to David. In verses 30 through 37, we see that he says, God, you are a father. Not only a father, but you're a father who disciplines. Remember what Hebrews 12, 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? So right here, they they lay out the promise. Okay, Lord, you promised David that you would make him a big name. You would make him a kingdom that would last forever. But we also acknowledge that not only are you going to make him that, we have some responsibilities as well. Look at verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, this is God, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my commitment or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. He's saying, even when my kids disobey my direct commands, I will not stop loving them. I will not stop even when I have to discipline them. Now, parents in the room, I know you've at least heard this. Maybe you've actually said it. But when you're disciplining your child, have you ever said, this hurts me more than you? That's really kind of what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, I am the one that's keeping the covenant. You've broken the covenant. But yet, I am going to keep my covenant in spite of how you respond to me. 
So we see this pledge in verses 18 through 37, this reminder of what God has done. This covenant, that's a churchy word, that just means a promise. But it's a promise that's got the force of law. You'll notice as we read this that the covenant is not, it's, it's not conditional. You know, this is why you know, we look at Israel, God doesn't go, hey, those guys are really great, let's go use them. No, what does he say? He says, I chose you because you were the least, you were the weakest. The same thing goes for this covenant. He didn't choose David because he was a strapping young man who looked like a king. He chose the weakest so that when David became the best, God got the glory. It simply says, I have chosen to do this. This covenant is true, not because of what David was like, not because of how great Israel was, but because of how great God is. And isn't that good news? That's good news for us, isn't it? We don't have to stand up and go, I have to be perfect for God to love me. God loves you in spite of it. That's good news for us because Christ was perfect on our behalf. So what is this covenant? Well, let me refresh your memory. 2 Samuel, this covenant is uttered. It says, in 2 Samuel 7, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise, you, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod and with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is, you know, he's just appealing to God's word here. He's saying, I am appealing to the promises. And I think this is important for us that we understand what is not being said here. What is not being said here is you can appeal to any promise that you feel like God has made. I had a dream one time, and God promised me this. I I had a friend who told me that God promised them this, so he promises this to me. I heard a worship song one time, and it said this, so that's a promise for me. I've taken a verse out of its context, and I'm going to apply it to me, and there's my promise. Even preachers and teachers who get up and say, here's the promises of the Lord, only have value if they're found where? In God's word. And there are thousands and thousands of promises that apply to you. The greatest of them is that he promises to take away our sins and they are gone and he forgets them. That's the best promise in the world, that our sins are not held against us. So we need to know the promises of the Lord. So if you're not reading your Bible, you're not hearing from the Lord and seeing his promises. Tomorrow in our our Monday morning uh, gleanings, I'm going to be listing a bunch of those promises. They're in there. You can look them up, memorize them, because those promises are for you. Those promises are the ones that you can hold God accountable for. So we need to know his word. Verses 34 through 37 here, we see that Israel's disobedience throughout history, even with that, God promises now, this is not just like, oh, I, I, I sinned, I, I, you know, I, I swore, or I, you know, I, I used God's name in vain, or I might have stole something, or something like that. This is the whole nation worshiping false gods, some of which require the sacrifice of children and people. This is, this is hardcore rebellion against God, and yet God says, 
I will not forsake my covenant. Evil was rampant, and yet God remains faithful. And we need to remind ourselves of this because as we move into the next section, it starts to get really heavy as he starts to recount what is coming next. We need to remember that disobedience does lead to suffering. Now, God is not punishing us if we are suffering. We need to understand that. The suffering many times is a response to what we have done. Christ was punished on our behalf for our sins, but the repercussions of our sins still are on us. It's not like you become a Christian and all of a sudden murdering somebody doesn't lead to you going to jail. That's not the way it works. Instead, the way it works is it's not counted against you if you're in Christ. So we see God here, it says, he swears by his holiness that he will uphold it. He swears by the highest thing in the universe, right? It's not just putting your hand on a Bible or I swear to God or pinky swear. No, God's saying, I'm swearing by the most perfect thing in the universe and that's my holiness. God will be faithful. So now we get to the turn It's not our usual turn. We're not turning back to God. Instead, we're turning to our circumstances. And we see, is this a broken promise? Does God break his word? So Ethan is perplexed. He's confused. What is going on here? How can this happen, Lord? You said this was never going to go away. Our kingdom was going to last forever. How is it that our kingdom is gone? Look at verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. Look at what he's feeling here. He's going, every conceivable part is gone. There's not even a remnant, which is ironic because he's a part of the remnant in in Babylon. But he's going, there's nothing The kingdom is gone. It's gone. Look at the words he uses here. You are full of wrath, rage, angry. You you have renounced us. You've exalted the right hand of our foes. You've cast us off, which means to spurn. This is emotive, intense language. He's saying, you've let us down. And, And verse 40 is even worse. Verse 40 is saying, Jerusalem has been destroyed. You've let them breach the walls, this city which is your city. We, just said, we, we read about Zion two weeks ago. Your city, Zion, is destroyed. How is this okay? Now, we need to remember, there's several parts to this. One part is that they probably deserved it because of their sin. We look back to those verses we read just a minute ago, and this could be God chastening them and saying, this is the repercussions of what you did. So they may need to repent. On the other side, it may not be that at all. Remember Job. Job did not sin with his mouth, and yet things happened to him. So we really don't know for sure why this is happening. And when when we feel distant from God, the thing we know for sure is that God didn't change. And we have to remind ourselves of that. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, You are in a place of absolute hopelessness because there is no point to your suffering. There's nothing there except for the point is come to know him today. You come to know him today, your your suffering now has a point. The the, the loneliness, the, the things that you're feeling, this meaninglessness now has meaning. Christ gives us meaning when we follow him. 
So this question, Lord, did you break your promise? Lord, why didn't you do what you said? I don't know that many of us would pray that way or feel comfortable praying that way. Can we really speak to God this way? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, if we're like Ethan, the the psalmist, and we take God's faithfulness and his love seriously, and we say, this doesn't match with who you are, Lord. Be who you are. Help me to see it. Help me to understand it. And no, it's not okay for us to do it if we're doing it like the Exodus 16 grumbling Israelites, where all they're doing is complaining. This is not good. I don't want this. And they never turn it back to God's love. See, Ethan's not shaking his fist at God in rebellion. Instead, he's saying, Lord, I know you. I know what you're like. This does not match. Help me understand it. Lord, keep your promise. He's exercising actually more faith because at this point, all the evidence that God's with him is gone. Right? Isn't it easier for us when everything's going great? We've got money in our bank account, got the retirement going, health's doing great, family seems to be doing great. Hey, that's an easy time to have faith. When it's hard to have faith is when everything falls apart. And many of you have experienced that in different ways, whether it was through what happened in the last few years or other periods of your life. Some of you are going through that now. Faith is what is required, and bold faith, courageous faith, going, I don't know, Lord, but I know you, Lord. He's not taking God to task because he hates God, but because he loves him. He's giving pain, voice to his pain and despair. And we often pass through this, but we need to understand this has been the experience of saints throughout the ages. There are lots and lots of Christians who've been in this place that Ethan finds himself in and have found their way out. Why? By running to their Lord. So reading this psalm today, we are reminded that God kept his promise. When we read this, we're not reading it like the people were when they were singing it. We're not even reading it like the people when they sang it a hundred years after it was written. Instead, we're reading it in light of the cross and we go, wow, if you only knew, Ethan, how the Lord is going to use that exile and how he's going to bring about not just an Israelite kingdom of David, but a worldwide kingdom of David, it would have blown your mind. See, these feelings in this feeling, I was trying to figure out in my mind, I was going, okay, where else have we seen feelings like what the Israelites are feeling right here? Just absolute, just let down. How could this happen? And you know what I was reminded of? I was reminded of the disciples on that Friday as they're watching their, 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 their Lord taken away in chains and then humiliated, crucified, dead. What, were they, what was their emotional feelings on that Saturday morning, that Saturday day? That was supposed to be a feast and a, a celebration of the Passover, and they're going, Lord, what are you doing? How, how does this work? You said, Jesus, you said your kingdom will last forever. Like, we actually heard you say it to us. We saw the miracles, and yet you're dead. I think the disciples were probably praying something like this prayer at that moment, weren't they? And the Lord in his mercy only made them wait 24 hours, well, three days if you count them up right. But on Sunday, they got to see 
what they needed to see to be able to make sense of all that had come before. One author writes, The exile to Babylon and the horror of the cross were events that moved the history of salvation forward. We need to learn that God always fulfills his promises, but does so at a level of greater complexity than our feeble minds can discern. See, that's the thing, is that we just can't get our minds around all the threads that God is putting together to make sense of all of this. And so the psalmist ends with, remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. This is a prayer. This is him praying to the Lord. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your, will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. The New Living Translation says, how long will this go on? He's praying. But again, look at this. It's not praying, forget you, God. No, it's remember me, Lord. Remember your promises to me, Lord. There's great, great promise in the fact that David's house had continued and that these people in this time, in their lowest place, could still pray this. And yet, we are in that place at times, aren't we? And you'll notice at the end of, of this section, in verse 48, it says, Selah. This is a musical interlude. We are meant to stop, pause, and think. Lord, you've abandoned us. Lord, what do we do? Remembering our lives are like a breath on a cold day. It's gone. Lord, your time is running out. Come and fix it. Come and make it right. Then we get to verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mocked, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. One translation says, Where are your former acts of favor, Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? See, the psalmist does not walk away. The psalmist goes, This doesn't match with who you are, God. Keep your promises and do it now. Instead of walking away from God, Ethan is turning and walking towards God. Instead of saying, all right, God, that's enough. I'm, I'm out of here. He goes, this doesn't seem right. I need to get closer to my Lord. I need to get in his presence more so that he can show me. See, the psalmist's only hope was to appeal to God's love. Remember verses one through four when it said steadfast love and faithfulness multiple times? This is him appealing to God. He's saying, don't let these nations that will mock you have the final word. You have the final word. See, we can pray this way. We can call out to God because he's a gracious father. We can call out to God because he's our creator. We can call out to God because he says, in my presence is pleasures forevermore. Come be with me. He wants us closer to him. God does not punish us when we pray honestly. He does not punish us when we call on him to keep his word. Instead, he says, come and be with me. Do you hear Ethan's heart here? you hear the psalmist's heart? He's saying, I want my people and I want to experience the joy of the Lord again. I want it back. He's not saying, I've never felt it. Let's sing about it. He's going, I want it again. Come and do that. See, we must understand that our faith is not based on how God does things, but who God is. 
We have this tendency to, to, to look at our circumstances and occasionally glance over at the Lord. We gaze at our circumstances, right? And we kind of, oh yeah, the God's over there. We need to flip that on its ear. We need to glance at our circumstances and gaze at the Lord. And that's what this psalmist is doing. He is saying, I am not going to sit here in my circumstances and stew about it. Instead, I'm going to let those circumstances push me to my Lord even more. A.W. Pink wrote, How blessed to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin, and behold the one who is faithful in all things at all times. When we have a situation that feels like God is not there, we turn and run to him. So how did this play out for Ethan and the Israelites? How did it play out? Well, they got their land back, kind of. And for 500 years, Israel was under the control of different ruling nations, and there were no prophets in Israel. Don't you wish you could go back in time? Having seen a little bit of him, I, you know, I, I think this guy is, is pretty amazing, and he's being so honest with the Lord. If I could go back in time and tell him, you only saw this much, imagine all of this that happened. God kept his promise, but in a way that boggles the mind. Do you remember when you used to go into stores and you get the little ticket that tells you a number? Remember that? And they had the little red, the sign with the black and red and it would have the now serving. Or the guy behind the counter would go, hey, now serving number whatever, right? Imagine you walk into a store. You pull the ticket and you're like, okay, number 43, awesome. And you're standing there and the guy behind the counter goes, now serving number five. And you go, oh, man. What do you want to do? <laughs> Tear it up and be like, fine, you're not serving 43, I'm out. But what happens if you go in there and you pull the ticket and it's 43 and then the guy behind the counter goes, now serving number 42, you're going, all right, we're in business. This is going to work. See, the Bible has four tickets. The first one is creation. Creation's ticket's been pulled. It's happened. The second ticket was the fall. Creation fall. Both tickets have been pulled. Ethan and the Israelites find them right before the third ticket gets pulled. The third ticket getting pulled is the coming of Christ. That ticket was pulled after Ethan had been in the grave for years. We now live with three of the four tickets of the universe pulled. The ticket that we have in our hand if we're Christ is number four. And number three's already been pulled. What that means is, is that that number is going to get called at any moment. And this is our hope. This is our hope that whether we die and wake up in heaven or Lord comes and calls in number ticket number four, we are going to be in his presence. And this is our hope. So until then, we can sing this song. When God feels distant, we go, okay, I know the last ticket's going to be pulled. Lord, what are you doing? That's what's going to happen, but I don't know how it's going to work. Think of those previous tickets and how each of those, the Lord solved the issue. But see, that's good news, but there's some bad news here as well. If we do not know Christ and that ticket gets pulled, that's the worst news ever because that ticket means judgment is coming. And if you're in Christ, the judgment has been paid that just God, who's righteous judge, has pay, it's been paid through Christ's life. If you're not in Christ, you are standing before the judgment without the righteous one in your place.
So we must remind ourselves of this. This soul strengthening, it's how great it is to behold the one who keeps his word. God will never forget his word. He will never forfeit his promises. He will never violate his covenant. He keeps his word. So this psalm invites us to be bold. Pray out those laments. Pray those promises back to God. If our heart's desire is God, if we long for ourselves and our people to experience it, we will feel it. If we're grumbling, then we need to repent and get that joy back of being in his presence. So, unlike people, our Lord is faithful. He is faithful. His purposes and pledges are what he will do. There is comfort here for us. We look back through history and we see he has kept his word over and over again to every single saint. He's going to keep it for every single saint in the room here. Great is his faithfulness because of the power of his word, because of the power of his holiness, because he does not change. May all God's people anchor themselves to him alone who is perfectly faithful at all times in all things. The divine promises may be late and they may not be on our time schedule, but be assured, God keeps his word. God is faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we know that you do not change. You are the same God who heard this song written thousands and thousands of years ago. You are the same God who made the promise to David, to Abraham, to Noah. And you're the same God that will be returning in glory soon. Help us, Lord, to rise up underneath that and to trust you when we don't quite see what it is that you're doing. Help us to do that. Help us to do that well. Lord, you've given us your spirit so that we can. There is hope. And if we don't know that, Lord, I pray pray that we would repent and we would come to know you today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you embody. In Jesus' name, amen.